1953, a family of five was found dead in their home in Reykjavik City. A 35-year-old pharmacist had poisoned himself with cyanide, along with his wife and their three young children. On a bedside table next to the couple's bed was a glass bottle, and next to it lay a suicide note left by the pharmacist. This case is the first and only of its kind in Iceland when an individual kills himself and takes his family with him. What were the events leading up to this tragic event? And what could have caused the father to do such an act to take his wife and their children with him into death? You are listening to the Icelandic True Crimes Podcast, your weekly injection of Icelandic crime and mystery cases. I am your host, Margaret Björs. Some of the episodes may feel disturbing for listeners, so I advise to skip ahead when needed. Also keep in mind that care and respect must be taken in discussion of sensitive cases. You can find additional information on each case under show notes on the website icelandictruecrimes.com. Let's dive into this case. The year is 1953, February 26, and we are situated in a little old house at Surkata 2 in downtown Reykjavik city. In the house lives the couple Sigurdur Magnusson, 35-year-old pharmacist, and his wife Hulda Karen Larsen, who is a 33-year-old housewife. They have been fortunate to have three healthy children, the son Magnus, and the daughter Sigríður Dúa and Ingibjörg Stefania. Ásdís, who is one of Hulda Karen's sisters, has been living with the couple for some time. It's a Thursday morning and Ásdís is getting ready before heading to work around nine. When she leaves, Hulda Karen is up and preparing the day ahead and the children are getting dressed. Sigurður is, however, still in bed. Two years prior, he had been diagnosed with encephalitis and therefore been on a leave from his job at Reykjavik Apotek Pharmacy, but just recently started working there again as a pharmacist. Before, he had just come home after staying in a psychiatric ward, and he seemed to be in better health. He had, however, been on sick leave from work over the week due to bad headaches he had been experiencing. But his family, friends and colleagues all had hopes of his difficulties being over and that he was getting better. Around noon, Sigríður, who was Hulda Karen's mother, knocks on the front door at Södergata 2. With her is Auslöf, the twin sister of Austis, and they've come together from where they lived in Edrin Jardvik to visit Hulda Karen and the children. No one came to the door, but the new Hulda and the children were supposed to be home. 
They opened the front door and walked in, but no one answered when they called out. They then walked into the couple's bedroom, but were greeted with a frightening sight. Sigurdur, Hulda and the three children lay fully clothed side by side in the couple's bed and were all dead. On Sigurdur's bedside table was a glass bottle and by it lay a suicide note addressed to Austis, Hulda's sister who was living with them. Sigurdur ran out of the house. Behind the house on the corner of Södergata and Tungata lived a doctor by the name of Valtir Albertsson at Tungata 3 and Sigurdur went there for help. She told him the family lay dead in the next house, so Valtir immediately called the police before he ran over to the family's house at Södergata 2. The police arrived immediately, and later that same day sent out a press release with the newspapers published the day after. At Södergata 2 here in town lived Sigurdur Magnusson, a pharmacist, his wife Hilda Karen, their three children aged three to six, and Austis, the wife's sister. Austis went to work at around nine this morning, and the housewife was then up and the children getting dressed. When the housewife's mother, who lives in Etrinjarvik, came at 12.40 p.m., the whole family, the couple and the children, were dead. Doctors and police were immediately called. On the husband's bedside table was a glass bottle labeled poison and a letter he had left for Austis where he explained that he, who lately had been feeling sicker, had in his despair gotten his hands on poison, which he had given the whole family and that they would all be dead before anyone would find them. He stated he couldn't bear to leave the children and his wife behind. An autopsy will take place on the bodies, and further incidents of this tragic event will be investigated. Sigurdur Magnusson was 35 years old when this event took place. He was born in Reykjavik City on March 27, 1918. He was said to be of the better citizens in Reykjavik, being the son of Magnus Sigurdsson, the bank director of the National Bank of Iceland, and Austrider Stefansen Magnusdóttir, which in total had nine children together. Sigurdur's father, Magnus Sigurdsson, had been the director of the National Bank of Iceland, or Landsbanken, for 30 years. He had passed away suddenly when he had a heart attack in Genova in Italy in 1947, when he was there as an ambassador for the government of Iceland. He was also the brother of Jón Hjaltalín Sigurdsson, who I mentioned in the brother murder case in prior episodes. Jón Hjaltalín had been a district doctor of Reykjavík before he became the director of public health and was the one who treated Eyjólfur Jónsson while he was on his deathbed and then treated Juliana Silvau after she murdered her brother Eilver with poison. Sigurdur's mother, Austria Stephensen, 
died at the age of 48 in 1933. She had suffered from influenza and been recovering when she suddenly got pneumonia and passed away only a few days later. Her father, Magnus Stephensen, was from a long line of officials and was the last of Iceland's governor-generals when the office was abolished. Sigurdur had finished the first half of his pharmacy studies at the Lögevex Apotec Pharmacy in 1941 and took the final exam in pharmacology in 1943 at a university in Philadelphia in the United States. He was hired as a pharmacist a year later at the Reykjavik Apotec Pharmacy where he worked until his death. Sigurdur was thought of as easygoing, pretty much reserved in his manners and behavior, determined on his opinions and a man who stuck to his own. Hilda Karen Larsen, the wife of Sigurdur, grew up in Siglufjörður, but was born in Reykjavík on May 29, 1920. She was two years younger than Sigurdur and therefore 33 years old when she died. While Hulta grew up in Siglufjörður, she practiced with a local gymnastics club, did acting in various plays in the community and practiced skiing. She was the daughter of Sigurður Augmundsdóttir and the stepdaughter of Karl Grimur Duason. But Hulta's father was a man named Kai Larsen, who lived mostly in Copenhagen in Denmark. Little is known about him, but I've tried to dig for information on who he was. Two men can be considered to be him, but I'm not going to state anything about who he was without any concrete facts. Before Hulta was born, her mother had given birth to two sons who were put up for adoption. And then Esther Svanlaug Bjarnadóttir, a daughter who grew up in fostering. Together, Sigurður and Karl had five children. The youngest were the twin sisters, Auslaug and Austis, but Austis was the one who lived with Hulta and Sigurður at Södergata when the tragic event took place there. Sigurður and Hulta had not lived for long at Södergata. After they got married, they had three children together. The son Magnus in 1946, next the daughter Sigríður Dúa in 1948, and then the daughter Ingibjörg Stefania in 1949. Therefore, the children were only around six, five and three years old when they died in 1953. The house at Sörgata II is generally referred to as Dillonsús, or Dillon's house, and is among the oldest houses of Reykjavík city. It stood at the corner of Södergata and Tungara, but due to its story, the house was transferred to the Museum Árbær Sap for preservation in the summer of 1961. But the story in question is not the story of Sigurdur and Hulta. Dillons Hus was built in 1835, but its history began the year before, when the young British man Arthur Dillon traveled to Iceland in the summer of 1834. His full name was Arthur Edmund Dennis Dillon Lee, born in 1812 and of Irish and British nobles. He had two older brothers, 
so he didn't expect to succeed his father's Viscounty title. But after his father passed away, Arthur used his inheritance to travel. Before Arthur came to Iceland, he had traveled throughout Lapland and intended to write a book on his travels. Upon Arthur's arrival in Iceland, he rented a room from a foreign trader in Reykjavik. The room was not warmed up, which was common then. So when winter arrived and the weather became colder, he rented a room from Sire Ottesen at Klubburen, or the club. Klubburen was then the primary entertainment club in Reykjavik, located at the corner of Kirkjustræti and Adalstræti. At Klubburen, Sire ran a restaurant, which Arthur had been attending before moving in. Sire had been running Klubburen for over four years, and there was a lot of drinking and dancing. Sire was thought of as one of Reykjavik's most beautiful women, and she and Arthur fell in love. Before the year was over, Arthur had bought a building property with a kitchen garden on the opposite side of the street next to Klubburen, and began building a house for himself and Sire the spring after. That house was at Sörgata 2, where Sigurdur and Hulda later lived with their children. Arthur and Sire moved into the house before it was fully built and planned on getting married. They were expecting a baby and on June 13, in 1835, their daughter was born and named Henriette after Arthur's mother. However, since Arthur was the only Catholic in Iceland and Sire was Lutheran, they had to apply for an exemption from the Danish authorities to marry. They were refused to marry, since Arthur's relatives in Britain protested their mats, and therefore one of his older brothers was sent to Iceland to bring Arthur back home. Because Sire was a 36-year-old divorcee and had children with three different men and been convicted of adultery, Arthur's family didn't think Sire was good enough to become his wife. In addition, many gossiped about their relationship in the streets of Reykjavik. Therefore, Arthur returned to Britain in the fall and gave Sire the house at Södergata too, where she continued to live with her daughter Henriette. The house has been referred to as Dillon's house ever since, and there Sire ran a restaurant with an alcohol license and held dances for housemates, laborers, and others who weren't thought of as good enough for the fine dances held at Klubberen. Sire also rented out one of the rooms, and among those who rented it from her was the Icelandic national poet and natural scientist Jonas Hallgrimsson, who rented the room during his last winter in Iceland in 1841-42, before he died in Copenhagen. Sire Ottesen was born in 1799 and was therefore 13 years older than Arthur. But her real name was actually Sigrider Elisa Thorkelsdóttir Bergman. Since she was born and raised in Denmark and her name was thought to be too difficult for the Danish to pronounce, she was called Sire, which stuck with her since. 
She got her last name Ottesen from her former husband, Laurus Ottesen. After Henriette's Christian confirmation, Sire quit the restaurant she ran in Tillonshus and rented out the majority of the house. Among the first tenants was Augusta Johnson, but in 1851 she founded Iceland's first school for girls in Tillonshus. A year later, her sister Thora Melstedt started teaching with Augusta at the school. The school in Dillonshus was discontinued in 1853 due to shortage of funds, but in 1874, Thora Melstedt, along with other women, founded Kvennaskole Reykjavíkur, or the Women's School of Reykjavík, which is still operating today. In 1840, Arthur Dillon published in two volumes the book a winter in Iceland and Lapland, on his travels throughout Lapland and his one-year stay in Iceland in, in the winter of 1834-35. You can find a link to the book in this episode's show notes if you are interested in checking it out, as both volumes are available free on the internet. After Arthur went back to Britain, he never returned to Iceland. But his daughter Henriette visited him to Britain when she got older, and they communicated by letters. The love affair Arthur had with Sire was hushed up after his arrival to Britain, and therefore the relationship was not mentioned in Arthur's book. He met another woman after he returned home, with whom he had two sons, and when his older brothers died, Arthur became the 16th Viscount Dillon of Costello Gallen. After Arthur's death, his eldest son, Harold Arthur Dillon, became the 17th Viscount of the Dillon family. He was a renowned scientist, an archivist at the Tower of London Museum, and one of the founding members of the British Academy in 1902. Before Arthur Dillon went home to Britain, he made a will in which he inherited Sire and Henriette considerable funds. Arthur Dillon lived a long life, but Sire and Henriette both died before Arthur passed away, and therefore they never came to inherit the money Arthur had intended for them in the will. The will itself got lost, until it was accidentally found over a century after it was made in an old cabinet in the Financial Ministry of Iceland. Today, a restaurant is operated in Dillonshus during summertime, where it now stands in the Museum Aurbeyersabt, just like Sire Ottesen had done before. But over the wintertime, Dillonshus is rented out for meetings and celebrations. The house was moved there for preservation in 1961, and later the house was declared protected in 1990 due to its age. At Sörgata 2, where Dillonshus once stood, there is now only a parking lot. This was the story of Sörgata 2, Dillonshus, and the British nobleman Arthur Dillon, who built it for the woman he loved but was not allowed to marry. Sigurdur and Hulta's family at Sörgata didn't live far from the pharmacy where Sigurdur worked at Östersträti 16. Today, the Apotec restaurant is located there, but the pharmacy itself operated in the building for
from 1930 to 99. The pharmacy had previously been operating at Österwetle 4, where now is Thorvaldsenstraite 6, but that building was torn down in 1960. It is noteworthy that in the history of the Reykjavik Apotek Pharmacy, three individuals are known to have committed suicide by taking in poison. Sources do, however, contradict whether one of those cases was a suicide or death by natural causes, but I will get into that in a little. When the Reykjavik Apotek Pharmacy was operating at Thorvaldsenstraite, there lived a Danish couple, the pharmacist Niels Smith Kruger and his wife Maria Josephine Angelique Kruger. One morning in 1882, the couple was arguing in the dining room at the pharmacy when Maria became angry with her husband Niels, so she threatened to drink carbolic acid from a bottle she held if he didn't take back what he had said to her. Niels didn't take her words seriously and said that she should do whatever she pleased and walked from the dining room to the pharmaceutical part of the house. After a while, he was notified by another member of the household that Maria drank from the carbolic acid, and then she died before anything could be done to save her. When this happened, Niels was 32 years of age and Maria 27. The couple had been running the pharmacy for over five years and had two daughters together, Luise Johanne Kruger, who was two years old, and Ingeborg Kruger, who was only two months old. The younger daughter, Ingeborg, died half a year after her mother's death, and Luise Johanne was sent into fostering. When Maria passed away, a man named Jon Thomason was an assistant to Niels at the pharmacy and lived there with a the couple. He was 27 years old, the same age as Maria, had moved in with a couple three years prior to her death. He kept living with Niels at the pharmacy after Maria's death, working there as his assistant. But a few years later, in 1890, Jon is also supposed to have committed suicide by taking in poison at the pharmacy. As I mentioned earlier, sources contradict whether his death was a suicide or not. But the rumors ever since say he willingly took in poison to commit suicide. Newspapers at the time state that Jon had been suffering from influenza and had accidentally taken in too much of something he was using to treat himself and therefore died. But whether that's true or not, there are many stories of incidents with ghost hunting in the house where the pharmacy once stood at Thorvaldsenstraite 6. I will tell you in more detail about Marie Kruger and Jon Thomason in another episode later. But let's get back to the case of Sigurdur Magnusson. Sigurdur got a pharmacy license in 1951, which at the time was hard to get, and therefore he could have opened his own pharmacy. However, it didn't come to him doing so, since he had become ill. Not much is known of Sigurdur's illness, but what is known 
is that he suffered from a brain disease that was considered to be encephalitis. In some cases, encephalitis can lead to psychiatric disorders, but it was not clear at the time whether that was the case with Sigurdur or if he suffered from a mental disorder or a personality disorder, regardless of encephalitis. But the encephalitis had its effect on Sigurdur, and therefore he soon became unable to work at the pharmacy. He had been confined in a psychiatric ward for some time, and at one point he was in such a critical condition that it was necessary for a policeman to guard him 24 hours a day so he wouldn't harm himself or others. It is not unlikely that Sigurdur was suffering from severe depression and had suicidal thoughts. Nothing is known of which treatments Sigurdur received while he was confined in the psychiatric ward, nor have I found whether he was confined in the mental hospital Kleppur or even at the Lantakot hospital. Since Icelandic psychiatrists at the time saw their psychiatric studies in Denmark, Treatments in psychiatry were under Danish influences. Electroconvulsive shock therapy and lobotomy were used to treat some mental disorders, depression, and psychosomatic neurological disorders. Lobotomy is a surgery performed on the lobe of the brain, which was definitely not used on Sigurdur, but it can't be ruled out if electroshock therapy was used or not to treat him for severe depression, since this method was used in most hospitals in Iceland and even performed in homes. In electroshock therapy, a high voltage electrical current is launched quickly through the patient's head, who then loses consciousness and has seizures. This method was used to treat mental illnesses, mostly severe depression. It could cause memory problems right after the treatment and even permanent changes in those treated. Electroshock therapy has however changed since then. And today, it is a standard treatment for severe depression at the psychiatric department of the Landspitale University Hospital in Iceland, where patients are usually sent three times a week for this treatment when no medication has sufficed. The patient is anesthetized before the treatment starts and when muscle relaxants have begun working, an electric current is launched for a few seconds to cause seizures that last for about 15 to 30 seconds. In the past, electroshock therapy was not used at the mental hospital Kleppur since Helge Thomason, the chief psychiatrist at the time, was entirely against this treatment as he found it to be inhumane. Therefore, electroshock therapy was not used on patients at Kleppur until in the 70s. When Sigurdur was diagnosed with encephalitis, there was not a lot that could be done to cure this disease, but today you can be given antivirals intravenously. Encephalitis is characterized by bad headaches and stiffness in the neck, weakness, fever, and nausea, but can also be characterized by tremors, seizures, hallucinations, memory loss, and even paralysis. As I mentioned earlier in this episode, Sigurdur had complained of headaches 
and been on sick leave from work the week he murdered his family. Encephalitis can affect a person's personality and have a psychological effect. For example, some people experience changes in mood and behavior, increased anxiety and depression. The changes in brain functioning may also reflect a person's reaction to difficulties in everyday life due to other impairments resulting by the encephalitis. The emotional effects of encephalitis vary for each individual, depending on the area of the brain affected by the inflammation. Sigurd may have had thoughts of committing suicide for some time before he carried it out and not wanted to leave Hulda and their children behind without the breadwinner of the home, and therefore given the poison to them to take them with him. Why he considered that disastrous decision to be the best is impossible to know, but there are a number of theories on why individuals take their loved ones with them into death when they take their own lives. Family side or family murder is a certain type of murder in which an entire family is murdered by a family member who consequently takes his own life. All family members are murdered or either one of the parents and one or more of the children. Not in all cases is the perpetrator one of the parents as he can even be one of the children who kills their parents and siblings. Family murder is the most common type of massacre, but what separates family murders from, in quotation marks, traditional massacres, is that a killer murders his family members or loved ones rather than strangers. Family murder also has other psychological and mental meanings, but differentiation is not made in all cases between massacres of loved ones and strangers. Family murders are also a taboo in sociological sense, since they in most cases involve manslaughter, suicide and child murder, or filicide, when a parent kills their own son or daughter. Many researchers consider this subject an underrated topic in research and that family murders are not studied enough. Because of the psychosocial differences associated with family murders, it proves more difficult to address the risk factors and motives, such as the family circumstances that precede the act, the number of victims, and their relationship with the perpetrator. It all makes it impossible for researchers to generalize causalities in family murders, though they have identified common underlying motivations. The perpetrator in family murders is in most cases a male, preferably the father. To narrow this down even further, the perpetrator is by far, most often, a white male between the ages of 30 and 40. In about half the cases, the perpetrator does not take his own life. But those fathers who have murdered their family without taking their own life have said they did so to protect their family or that their spouses had threatened to leave them and take the children. But it is also likely that the perpetrator has dealt with some kind of a personality disorder or had financial problems. In a study published in 2013, 
conducted by Liam and Reichelman, 238 cases of family murders were examined in the United States over a 10-year period. Their study identified four unique clusters of family murders in which similar characteristics and motivations were grouped together. The first cluster contains despondent husbands and involves the murder of the spouse and children of the perpetrator. The main theme of this cluster is altruism, as the perpetrator tries to protect his family by taking them along with him in his desired suicide. Financial problems are common in this cluster, as the perpetrator may have lost his job or has difficulty maintaining one, and feels as though he no longer has control over his family and cannot provide for them, and that he can't protect his family anymore, so their death is in their best interest. The second cluster contains cases of revenge on the spouse, in which the spouse and children are murdered by the other parent, and the perpetrator does not commit suicide. This cluster has underlying themes of rage from threat of separation from the spouse and loss of control. When the other spouse has attempted to end relationship or marriage, it creates sexual jealousy or suspicion of infidelity, which causes the perpetrator to feel challenged regarding their possession of the family. He could view the family as a singular unit and is not able to separate the children from the other spouse, so the perpetrator justifies that the children are also trying to leave him and therefore must include the children in the murder. The third cluster contains extended parasite. This cluster includes cases where the perpetrator is one of the children who murders both its parents and its siblings. The perpetrator usually does not follow with committing suicide and is in their teens or early twenties. The parents could be the intended target of the perpetrator and the siblings are seen as either an extension of the parents or they witness their parents' murder and are therefore also murdered. The perpetrator's motivation is typically an external stressor which the perpetrator considers the parents are responsible for and therefore retaliates by murdering them. The fourth and final cluster contains diffused conflicts and involves the death of family members in any variation, such as parents, spouses, grandparents, in-laws or cousins. The murders usually stem from the perpetrator's anger and perceived portrayal by his spouse. Other family members may be considered to be involved in the betrayal or are present at the time so the two become victims of the perpetrator's attack. Psychopathological factors may also be the underlying causes of family murders, such as severe depression or personality disorders. Studies have found a high rate of antisocial, narcissistic or borderline personality disorders being diagnosed in perpetrators of family murders. As a result, impulse control disorders and paranoid belief systems can be associated with perpetrators of family murders. Other theories find motivations for family murders to be cultural. 
If we take a look at Japan, family murders are deeply rooted in Japanese culture. For example, in 1983, over 400 family murders were committed in Japan, in which about 1,000 adults and children lost their lives. In Japanese, family murder is called Ojaku Shinju, and it is thought of as respectful to kill your children and then yourself to save your family's honor if it is in danger. That way, you cleanse your family of shame. This view on spiritual life in Japan is influenced by the theories of Confucius, that children are only an extension of their parents and therefore their property. So if the father or mother considers themselves forced to commit suicide, it is then, in quotation marks, normal that the children must die with them. Some Japanese believe that spirits of the dead meet after death, and therefore some parents have thought it best to also kill their children when they take their own life. In Sigurdr's case, the cause was likely psychopathological due to the encephalitis he had been diagnosed with, rather than cultural. Next to the glass bottle found on his bedside table, a suicide note was found, written by Sigurdur and addressed to Austis, his sister-in-law, who was at the time living with the couple. In the letter, according to the press release sent out by the police, Sigurdur wrote something to that effect that since he had lately been feeling sicker, he had eventually, in desperation, gotten his hands on poison which he gave to his whole family, and that they would all be dead before anyone would find them. He said he couldn't bear to leave the children and his wife behind. In reports by the Public Health in Iceland in 1953, which reported on the autopsy of their bodies, it said that the bottle found was labeled camphor mixture, not poison, as stated in the press release by the police. At the time, camphor was used for colds and different kinds of respiratory diseases. A lab test then revealed that in the camphor mixture was a considerable amount of cyanide. Sigurdur had most likely mixed cyanide into the camphor mixture and then had his wife Hulda and their children drink from the bottle to defend a cold in their belief that the bottle contained a cough mixture. After cyanide is taken in, the blood pressure drops, the heart rate slows down, and the person has convulsions and loses consciousness. Eventually, the heart paralyzes and stops beating. Sigurdur had access to cyanide as a pharmacist in the Reykjavik Apotek Pharmacy. Cyanide was actually not used for therapeutic or pharmaceutical production in Iceland, but bought by goldsmiths from pharmacies for use in their work. Because of how dangerous cyanide is, care was taken in access of supplies available at pharmacies, and therefore, employees were unauthorized to take cyanide home with them. But somehow, Sigurdur was able to sneak a dose home with him. It is clear that Sigurdur prepared the murders in advance, and therefore, the act was not a temporary insanity. He mixed the cyanide with a camphor mixture 
and gave it to his family under the pretense they were defending a cult. Sigurd then drank from the same bottle as his wife and children had drank from. They were not able to find anything wrong with the flavor, as cyanide is completely flavorless. But it is a powerful and fast-acting poison, so the family died in a matter of minutes. About half a gram is needed to kill an adult. In news on a case, which were published in the days following the event, it was said that Sigurdur had been of an unsound mind and had likely committed the act involuntarily. It is noteworthy how carefully it was reported on this case in newspapers. Most sufficed with publishing the press release by the police, and little to nothing was added. The headlines only said the family had been found lifeless. Icelanders were devastated by this disastrous event, but it especially raised attention that the word murder was never used in news reports of this case. Even Mánudagsbladið, or the Monday paper, which normally reported greatly on crime and violent acts, mentioned nothing of this case on their pages. On the day the family was buried, one obituary was published on Sigurdur in the Morgunblade newspaper by an unnamed colleague of his at the Reykjavik Apotek Pharmacy. He described Sigurdur as a reserved and calm man with a likable sense of humor which made him popular among his colleagues. He said, and I quote, By a bitter fate, this good family bade farewell at the same time and ended with, quote, it is a great loss of human life, of men like Sigurdur Magnusson. He didn't mention anything about his wife Hulda Karen, nor the children, only that Sigurdur had been married to Hulda, and there were no obituaries published in memory of them in any newspapers. The husband and wife, Sigurdur Magnusson and Hulda Karen Larsen, and their children Magnus, Sigurdur Dua, and Ingibjörg Stefania were buried on March 4th in 1953 at the Fosvogur Cemetery side by side. I now end this case and in the next episode I will present an even more recent Icelandic crime case. Thank you so much for listening to the Icelandic True Crimes podcast. I would love if you followed Icelandic True Crimes on Instagram and Facebook and tagged and shared the podcast with your friends. That way, you support this podcast and help others find this show. Visit IcelandicTrueCrimes.com for this episode's show notes. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, so you don't miss out on new episodes. Until next, I'll see you in the podcast discussion group on Facebook.